0: everybody. Welcome to episode 47 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch podcast. And I'm excited about today's episode because I have a pretty phenomenal woman who wrote a book called Stronger Than That, which is a domestic violence survivor uncovers the truth about her abuser. Her name is Sarah Doucette. And I didn't know enough about her or the book. And I just, I want to be as authentic and genuine as I can, but I had her booked to come on the podcast and I just, I didn't know enough about her story. And then I looked over the book, quite frankly, a few hours before interviewing Sarah and uh, man, it really changed the whole tone of the way that I was going about the interview. And let me just read the, on Amazon, let me just read the description because I really do want to give you a heads up because we're going to be talking about some triggering things today in the interview. And uh, you'll maybe understand when I read the description. So it says, this memoir is an inspirational yet harrowing story of a domestic violence victim's search for the truth about her marriage. 21-year-old Sarah Doucette married a charming, gregarious, and attentive man. Six years later, she left the marriage, lucky to be alive. Suffering from PTSD and disassociation after years of physical and emotional abuse, Sarah could barely remember the details of her marriage. After her ex-husband's death by suicide, Sarah set out to interview those who knew him, placing or piecing together the destructive patterns in his life and how it affected her even years later. It says this book is a cautionary tale about trusting one's inner voice in order to leave an abusive relationship. It's a story of domestic abuse survival that can help others survive their trauma while outlining the many kinds of domestic abuse. So, I have read the book. I had read a bit of it when I started the interview, and I was just looking forward to seeing where the interview went. But Sarah was, she was a very enjoyable person to talk with. And even though we were talking about really heavy things, you can tell that she's done a tremendous amount of work since all of this has happened. And writing that book, I think, has not only been a therapeutic thing for her, but I love the fact that she talks about that it, it, we're talking about difficult things. And she understands that there are going to be people that may think that she handled things wrong or that they think that she's maybe focusing on things that she shouldn't. But I think that fits so well into the things that we talk about here on Waking Up to Narcissism that ultimately you are the only version of you and you are going through life as you for the very first time and you don't know what you don't know. And then it's this process of awakening and she really talks about her being that pathologically kind person, being drawn to that person with the narcissistic traits and tendencies and, and overlooking red flags early and, and thinking the best and then just seeing where it almost got her. And then even after the relationship had ended and with the tragedy that, that of her ex husband's suicide, how there are still these things, these triggers that still come up for her and have required her to do a tremendous amount of work. But I think you're going to really enjoy Sarah. And I highly recommend the book. I'll have the link to buy the book in the show. And Sarah, toward the end, I asked her if she would be willing to maybe come on again and do a Q&A. So if you have questions specifically for her, you can reach out through the website, TonyOverBay.com, or you can just send them my way. Now, before I get to the interview with Sarah, I do also want to say you're going to hear a lot of me talking about the Magnetic Marriage podcast because it looks like we've got a date And it's going to be that first week, around the first week of December, that we're going to launch the Magnetic Marriage Podcast. It is going to be a paid or subscription-based podcast, but it is going to be a fraction of the cost of one therapy session, one coaching session with me. And I I, I did two more today. We've got so many of them that have already been done and even walking into the second session, having follow-up with people. And these are anonymous couples that have come to me with a variety of problems, people that have never been to therapy, never been coached before. And I really, I just did not expect that it would just be as powerful as it is. And we're working with all kinds of situations from just a lack of communication and somebody wanting to sharpen their tools to um, infidelity and betrayal and uh, people coming to the table that have had some childhood trauma. And I just, I cannot tell you uh, enough that I think it's really going to be something that is going to help you understand that that. It's going to normalize a lot of struggles that people have in their marriage and their relationship. And I really am going to stand in that healthy ego and say that I'm, I am grateful for an opportunity to let people know what couples therapy or couples counseling would actually sound and look like. So if you want more information about that, the best thing to do would be go to tonyoverbay.com, sign up for my newsletter, and I will make you aware of that. Or you, you know, and if you're still interested in being a couple, We've got interviews lined up for quite a while, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to want to keep having people for for future episodes. So you can reach out to info at TonyOverBay.com and and then we'll get back to you and uh, maybe send you a questionnaire and find out a little bit more about you. So let's get to today's interview with Sarah Doucette. She's again, the author of the book, Stronger Than That, A Domestic Violence Survivor Uncovers the Truth About Her Abuser. Let's get to Sarah. Okay here, we, okay, here we go. Sarah just said, welcome to Waking Up to Narcissism.
1: Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> take, take seven, I think. Just for the listeners, we were talking and I was going over a few things. All of a sudden, I felt like we were deep in, in a very productive conversation. So I said, hang on, don't say another word, which is probably very awkward by a host to do to a guest. And then <laughs> we jump back on and then uh, things are downloading and dinging and pausing and freezing. So I think we're ready. Yeah. I think so. Okay, I'd love to that I was saying is it okay if we're conversational and you were sharing a little bit of you maybe had a, a couple of interviews that have been not quite conversational what's that been like mm-hmm. It's
1: been fine I yeah. I just am not great at pontificating about myself for 40 minutes <laughs> without yeah. you know the yeah. give and take and really my goal with putting this book out here is to have dialogue and conversation about mm. intimate partner violence and abuse. So yeah. yeah, I just think it's super important to have conversations about it. And it's so natural for people to have questions, especially if they maybe have never been in that situation or they know someone who has, and they're just dying to know, but it can be really uncomfortable to ask. And yeah. so I have put myself out there to not represent everyone in that community, but try to help answer some of those questions.
0: And I think it's interesting. Tell me if this is true about you, Sarah. So in the Waking Up to Narcissism podcast, I have a private women's Facebook group for women who are in emotionally abusive or relationships with narcissistic people, emotionally immature people. And we have a most of the group are, we call them pathologically kind people. They are people that Mm -hmm. don't typically put themselves out there and they find themselves in that, that relationship with the more dynamic, narcissistic, emotionally abusive person. So would you consider yourself one of these pathologically kind people who doesn't normally put themselves out there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That would describe me to a T, you know, (laughs) that and also, you know, I'm very empathic. Um, Yeah. So I think a lot of people who have that trait, tend Mm. to find themselves in relationships with narcissists because they just suck all of the energy and life out of you. And as an empath, like you just give all the time. And so it's so easy for them to kind of latch onto you.
0: Absolutely and so that's a perfect segue to your book is amazing. I didn't I didn't realize it's a little bit true crime. It's also a story of survival and people you didn't know what you didn't know. How about you set the stage and tell us a little bit about your book and your story and I promise I will jump in and ask questions. I won't leave you here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, perfect yeah, yeah so I met my ex-husband my sophomore year of college. So we were really young and it was kind of a whirlwind romance as it were, you know, he was very charismatic. He had a big gregarious personality. Everyone knew Steven, steve the Steven, like he had all these different personas mm-hmm. that he went by. And I was very quiet and very shy. You know, I grew up fairly sheltered. And then I left small town Maine and went to Florida for college. And um, it was like latching onto him and being pulled into his world. I immediately had this great group of friends and being shy and introverted. That was hard for me. So it was, it was so fun for that year of us dating and we got engaged and we got married when I was 20
0: can I ask you real quick, Sarah? And yeah. I do feel like so often people do say, but everything did seem fine. Did you experience the love bombing? Did you feel like this was just the most incredible connection and person I've ever met? Or were there, oh, were yeah. there red flags or warning signs? And did you just maybe overlook them?
1: I think there was all of the above. I mean, so okay. this was the yeah. guy who would you know, just show up at my dorm room with like a bouquet of a dozen long-stem pink roses for no reason, mm. like he would just show up, you know, he was always doing great, nice things for me and including my friends, which was really important to me. And then there were red flags that I think if I maybe had had experience with someone with this personality, I would have picked up on, but mm. you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And I, what I were didn't some of those know. those red flags?
0: What so I, I
1: put out an example in the book of this where, we were arguing about something so silly and it Mm. was a very common argument for us. And that was, where are we going to eat? And, you know, I would go through listing off every restaurant, like within a 30 mile radius and he would say no to every single one of them. And so finally I just said, okay, well then we don't need to go get lunch. Let's just, we'll, we'll forget about getting lunch. And he just gets really quiet and we're in the car and I could just feel the energy coming off of him. And so I asked him, I'm like, are you mad at me? And he says, I'm not mad at you. You wouldn't want to see me when I'm angry.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And that's kind of a big red flag. But in my yeah. like 19 year old brain, I was just like, oh, he's protecting me from his anger. How sweet of him.
0: Oh, yeah. And, okay. And that's
1: where my head went. And so mm-hmm. I just was kind of like, oh, okay. What's going yeah. on? And so it was little little things like that that if I had with my hindsight being 2020, 20, I would have been like, oh, girl, run. Get out of there.
0: Well, and you bring up a couple of really good points too, Sarah. One is I feel like the pathologically kind person is predestined to give the benefit of the doubt and mm-hmm. say, I mean, I love what you're saying, that exact example of always protecting me. Or I feel like so often I hear as a therapist the examples of people saying oh, I'm sure I read that wrong. I'm sure Mm -hmm. it it isn't as big of a deal as I think it is. And, you know, versus the, if somebody grew up in a home where there, there was no tolerance for that, would they have just not even attracted that person to begin with? Yeah,
1: no, I I think it's, it's so complicated because I find myself even in other relationships. And this is something that, you know, I mean, I've been in talk therapy since getting divorced. And, you know, one of the things that I actively work on is, not creating excuses for people. Like they don't need me okay, to make excuses good. for them. And yeah. I will do everything in my power to be like, Oh, well they're doing this because yeah. And that's not my role.
0: I love it. I do. So, yeah. So, all right. So then you get married. So a year in college and then you get married. And then what was that like?
1: The chapter in my book that talks about right after you got married starts with the simple sentence of the honeymoon was over as soon as it started.
0: Oh, Things okay. went
1: south immediately, like in the airport on the way to our honeymoon. Um, his wow. like true personality started just kind of rearing its ugly head. And so our honeymoon was horrible. He had me in tears several times there. And on the way back, it didn't get any better. And so within the first year, and I think this is a super important point to make, and I think a lot of people find you know, shame in this, but in the first year I left, things got really okay. bad and wow. I left and we were living in Massachusetts at the time. My family was in Maine. So I just hopped in my car and I drove home hmm. and he came and got me. And, you know, we went out on a drive. We had this whole long, deep conversation about like, you know, how, you know, he's sorry, he's going to change. He's going to fix things. But, but you do these things that make me do that. Yeah. So you also need to change. So enter gaslighting.
0: Yeah. And Sarah, I so appreciate you giving that example. Cause I, I've got a whole episode called the narcissistic apology and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, fine. You know, you're right. I'm sorry. And then it turns by the time but you made me do it and it's your fault. And, mm-hmm. and what are you going to take ownership of? And at that time, did you recognize that as a, you know, let's call it now a narcissistic apology or did you feel like, okay, that's fair. He's taking ownership. I probably need to.
1: Yeah. Yep. I, I yeah. completely fell into it. I was just like, you mm. know, it takes two to tango. There's two sides to every story kind of mentality. And so I was like, you're right. I'll take ownership that I'm not perfect. And I'm sure there's things that I do that upset you and have driven you to some of these behaviors. And so also growing up in a very religious background, divorce was like unheard of. And so it was like, you have to do everything possible to save your marriage. And I was like, okay, he's admitting to things, some give and take. I admitted to things. I went back. Mm -hmm. and probably within three or four months of going back, I ended up leaving again. Wow. Okay. And same cycle right back, you know, and I ended up going back again. And shortly after that, he got in some trouble at work and we ended up moving back to Florida, which is where I was when I met him. And from there it became easier for her to kind of, Separate me from my support network, which was my family and my friends from up here. And, Uh you know, I make mention of this specifically because I think people don't understand that it takes an average of seven attempts at leaving an abusive relationship for it to finally take. And -hmm. then those two weeks after you leave are probably the most dangerous time of your life.
0: Wow. Okay. And thanks for bringing that too. I mean, I do, I call them rule outs. And a lot of times when people, Say, okay, no, I understand more. And did you ever feel that way? Like I'm going back in, but I have new knowledge or I can, I can, I can work with this better. Okay.
1: Yeah. You know, people judge a lot. You know, I hear from people all the time. Oh, if my husband ever did that to me, I'd be out the door like that. And so easy to say that it's so easy to say, oh, if he, if my husband ever laid a hand on me, I, you know, I've heard people say all the time that I would hit them right back or stuff like that. And I'm like, it's so easy to say that when you know, in your heart of hearts, that if something like that happened, your husband wouldn't kill you. But if you don't know Mm -hmm. that for sure, it's not as easy to just say, okay, bye. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I talk about a lot—I spent a few years as a financial advisor—because um, there's something called coercive debt that happens in okay. um, domestic violence relationships. And this was not a term I had any I, any clue about while I, never I was never heard married. of this, and I, I yeah,
0: what? Well, tell me about it.
1: So coercive debt is when your husband or your partner, intimate partner, they either strip you of your job. And then they spend money in your name. They convince Mm -hmm. you to take out credit cards. When we got married, my credit was much better than my ex-husband's. And so we used my credit to finance a vehicle. And then during our marriage, unbeknownst to me, he actually had used my social and my identity, basically, to finance tens of thousands of dollars worth of stuff and then never made a payment. And so he hid the bills for me. I never saw any of this stuff until we got divorced. And because all of our property was in his name, he demanded that I give him my car back. So I had to go buy a new car. And when I got to buy a car, my perfect credit was in the 400s. And I only got wow. financed with a 16% interest rate. And at the time, I was living in that car. So losing my car was a big oh, deal. Oh, man,
0: Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see signs of that, the financial? Because it's interesting when you, I didn't know there was a name for that, but so often I do, I hear those stories in my office of people that the husband or the wife, whoever the more emotionally immature person was, has just made a lot of decisions. And in their mind, I think they justify it saying that they'll eventually, they'll pay these things off eventually, or it won't matter down the road. So they don't feel like they have to share those with their spouse. I mean, did you see signs of that along the way when he would bring home big purchases? would Would he gaslight you about how he made those? Yeah.
1: There's a, a an example in the book. We got married in January of '06, and in February of '06, we had left Florida and moved to Maine, and he'd become a general manager of the company he worked for. And one day he comes home with this mass like gorgeous Dell laptop, super expensive, uh-huh. top of the line. And I was like, "Where did you get this?" And he tells me that they give them to all new managers. All new GMs mm. at the company get them. Lo and behold, no, he used my social. He went on the Dell website and financed this $3,000 laptop back in 06. Wow. And then when we got divorced in 2012, you know, that $3,000 laptop was now over $6,000 in interest charges and late fees and penalties because he just never paid on it. And, you wow. know, we always live in apartments. They give you one mailbox key and he had that on his key ring. So he would get the mail and just dump the bills in the dumpster before he'd been coming home. Man. So I literally had, I had no idea. It was the shock of my life when I went to try to finance a car.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I bet, I bet. And so talk about you had made a couple of attempts to leave and then he would get you back in. And I think I had maybe taking you on a different path when you were talking about it t- can take seven times. So how mm-hmm. long were those, was there more time between attempts to leave? or Was it getting shorter or what are some of those things that you remember?
1: So the first two times were pretty quick. It was within okay. the first year and it was, and I tried to leave twice. After that, when we moved back to Florida, we kind of went through a honeymoon period, like we had moved, we were back in Florida, he was around his family again, so there was a little bit of a buffer. It was never perfect, but it was better and Then I had some support from his aunt who lived nearby, but it wasn't until we were married six years total, so it was five years later before i I officially tried to leave again and ended up successfully leaving that time
0: okay, what was um, the key but I had waited.
1: That? Um, be it was, so he came home one night with this crazy idea that like, what if we got divorced, didn't tell anyone and then threw a party and we're like, surprise, we're divorced. And I was just Mm. completely taken back by this. I thought this was the craziest thing I'd ever heard in my life, but I was also like, okay, he wants a divorce too. So Mm -hmm. now's my opportunity. So he was like, let's think on it for a couple of days. And then let's talk about it again. If we want to get divorced, we want to stay together. And so I waited a couple of days and this was like a couple of days after Christmas. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, have you thought about it? And he said, no. And I said, well, I haven't. I think we should get a divorce. Mm -hmm. And he literally just grabbed a soda from the fridge and he was like, okay. And he like went, he just went to the bedroom. So I was like, (sighs) yeah. I'm doing this. Like yeah. he's not fighting yeah. me. So at the time I was like, listen, I'm just going to move myself into the spare bedroom. You can have the master. I'll move into the spare room. There's a little twin sized bed. It will be fine. So less than a week later was our six year wedding anniversary. And mm-hmm. I was home in bed. He came home super late and he was drunk and he spent hours just yelling at me and just like verbally assaulting me. And then finally he like came in and physically assaulted me. Wow. And at that time I was just like, I was scared for my life. I mean, he had, you know, basically slammed me up against the wall, cracked my head up against the wall. And I was just wow. like, I have to get out of here. It's me or him at this point. And so wow. I waited until he had passed out from, you know, all the drinking and I don't know what else he might've been Mm -hmm. on, but, um, and I just grabbed what I could and I took off in my car and never went back.
0: Um, and that's you after that,
1: he would text me, Uh um, just vile things and just being like really rude. And I relate some of those text conversations in the book, but I went into hiding after that. I worked for a company that had armed security, um, at the door. So he couldn't get into me at work when I eventually got money and found an apartment. He never knew where I lived. I ended up after the divorce was final, changing my phone number. So I never saw him again after everything was kind of final. And he never even showed up for the divorce proceedings. He didn't sign the papers. I ended up having to file a motion for default.
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so Sarah, w- during the six years, did you guys try counseling or what was that experience like trying to, did you try to get help?
1: Um, no, yeah. I had me- I had talked about it, but in my experience with this particular narcissistic personality, um, there was yes. nothing wrong with him.
0: Of course. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so there was no like going to counseling for him. Um, no. So it just never worked. I talked about like, well, maybe let's go talk to our pastor. because We were members of his family church mm-hmm. and he had no, no, he was not interested in that. No,
0: church. like you say, nothing's wrong with him. And I appreciate, and I hope that I know that I should have maybe even prefaced that by saying, I feel like if you anyone, anyone you. <laughs> well, I did, but also I didn't want you to feel bad because I know that if someone' you know, is going, it's typically it's the husband saying, okay, fine. And that way the, the counselor can say that you're crazy. And a lot of times, the, they end up going to multiple therapists or that sort of thing because they need to find the one that backs up there. But your situation, I think, is far more the norm because mm-hmm. why would they if they're fine? And then you can go right. figure your stuff out if you need to, right? Yeah. What was the they're What they're was the your family line. support? What was your family saying throughout this process?
1: So my my it's never liked him, and uh-huh. here is the thing about that: I get it. I know why they didn't like him. You know, they got bad vibes from him but they were very far away.
0: Uh You know, they were
1: in Maine and I was in Florida, so they couldn't see all the everyday stuff going on. And it wasn't super easy for them to be involved. And then one Mm. of the things that happens in relationships like this is my ex-husband was very manipulative and he would find ways to kind of like turn me against people and people against me. So towards the end, my mom and I had a very surface level relationship. We weren't talking as much. We weren't super close. A lot of it is because my mom is a very strong personality and she's very sure of herself. And so she would have very strong opinions about my ex-husband I was not in a place where I was ready to hear any of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, And so I couldn't receive what she was saying to me. I mostly just resented it. I was like, why can't you just support me in this relationship? Uh, Yeah. But I get it as I'm a new parent myself. And so I get it. Like you see your kids suffering and you see them in a situation you don't want and you just want to rip them out of it. But this type of situation, when you're not ready to hear it, you're not ready to hear it. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to go. I was still fighting the good fight.
0: Well, and Sarah, I feel like wanting to say, obviously, I know I don't know you well. I love your vibe and your energy, and we mm-hmm. haven't even gotten to the part of the book that is just so wild. It takes almost like a true crime turn. Yeah. So I I don't want anything to feel like I'm saying, here's what you should have done because you did everything that you could do. But that concept with your mom, I think is so fascinating because here I just was wanting to tell you that, Hey, you're okay, but I really am going to say things about your mom. And I know that she was doing the best that she could do. Right. So I want to preface Mm -hmm. it by saying that too, but I feel like it feels natural for a parent to then want to say, I don't like him. And I think you should get away from him and that sort of thing. But I love that you're bringing this up because as a parent, my kids are adults and uh, some of the relationships they've been in, my wife and I had have had to be very intentional of, I need to put that almost aside. It almost feels counterintuitive to be able mm-hmm. to say, I'm going to support my daughter through this, this relationship so that when and if she finally has enough that she knows she can come and say, I need help versus the, I don't know if you've had moments where you felt like, I can't go, I need to show them, that I can do this. Did you have any of those moments?
1: Oh, absolutely. I talk about that okay. quite actually in depth in the okay. book as well about obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, And so at the time, yeah. like I felt like I was being so strong, like doing this myself. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I've got this. Now that being said, I do have a cousin who's also like my absolute best friend in this world. She's a PhD in social work and she was mm. right there with me. She was the person that could tolerate my ex-husband. Okay. So she was really kind of the only family that I had contact with. Like the only time we would, we would go on vacation and go visit her. And I mean, talking to her now, like they hated every minute of having him in their home, yeah. but just what you said, she needed to make sure that I, that she was a safe place for me to come and talk to him. And oh, I that I that. felt like she had an unbiased opinion. Um, so I would talk to his family about my problems with him and I just, I just remember when I tell this story in the book as well, I'm like, why is he so mean? And that mm. th- I'm just pleading with his mother and his father. Like, why, what have I done to deserve him being so mean to me? And his mother turns and looks at me and says, it's the woman's lot in life to suffer. Oh. And that was her advice. <laughs> and is I was it, and, like, and
0: that? Oh, no, okay. and I don't, and I, I know I don't know them as well. And I told Sarah and I talked before and I said, are you okay if I end up doing a humor? And I know this isn't a humorous thing. And I appreciate it. And you said, absolutely. Because I want to say, if I say bless their heart, I can say anything I want about them. So bless her heart. I don't know her, right? But I yeah. feel like that concept of where, hey, look, if you now all of a sudden say he's bad, then a parent will often say, well, then apparently you must think that I'm bad too. Mm-hmm. And so then I just need to gaslight you with that. And that's what an yeah. example that is, right? A woman's yeah. lot in life. I mean, I feel like it says the person who unfortunately probably was not in the healthiest relationship themselves. So if they can convince others that, well, this is the way life is, then it justifies that that was how their life has been. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah oh. it was
1: just, it was just like a moment. I was like, what in that? what are we saying right now? And so, you know, at yeah. that point, I just kind of stopped talking to them about it, too. Um, mm. And it was just so insane. And I think I was really nice to her. She and I were very mm. close. Uh, mm. And I think that she was afraid that she would lose that relationship.
0: Yeah, I think. Yeah, right, yeah, so I'm I think sure. a little
1: bit of her advice was self-serving.
0: hmm yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I say, bless her heart. I mean, people are trying their best. And I know that that is what is can be so hard. I love that you had. So it was your, did you say it was your cousin that was the social mm-hmm. worker? Yeah. Okay. And so I'm grateful that you had that example. And when you found out when she said afterward that, yeah, we didn't like him the whole time, did that feel validating? Or did you have that moment of, why didn't you tell me? What was that like for you?
1: No, I never, but it's just not my personality. I just never yeah, okay. was, like begrudging to anyone about it. I was okay. just like, so it was very much more validating to me. Like, yeah. Yes. And I got, and then finally we got to like talk very candidly about mm-hmm. all the stuff going on. So it was more of like a relief.
0: Good. Yeah.
1: You know? And, oh, and I feel like that's why I, this, I, yeah. Oh, or, go and, ahead. And like writing this book, and okay, so we'll kind of jump over a, a little bit, I guess, assume. into the true crime aspect yeah, of this. Assume. So I'll give you the quick 30 second synopsis of where the true crime element comes into this for the listeners if you haven't read the book yet. basically, part of what spurred me on to read this book is I received a phone call from my former mother-in-law it was about two and a half years after our divorce. And she calls me late at night. So I missed the call and something in like my spirit just told me something's not right. Like she shouldn't mm-hmm. be calling me. And so I called her back and I said, what's up with Steven? I didn't even say hi. I just, I knew I was like, what, what's going on? What's up with Steven? And she said that his body had been found in the woods and it was either homicide or suicide. Wow. And I, I just, I just didn't even know where to go from there. I just remember like sitting yeah. down. I was in my bedroom. I just sat down on my bed and I was like, Well, when did this happen? And the shock of my, <laughs> the second shock of my life, just like about 30 minutes ago.
0: Wow. I'm oh, like, Sarah.
1: I- I've been divorced from your son for two and a half years. Why are you calling me 30 minutes after like finding out that he's deceased? Yeah. It's just so surreal. For I me, can't and imagine. I didn't even know how to process it. Yeah. Uh, so after that, I tried to be there for his family. They wanted me to come down to the funeral. I was like, I can't do that. I can't mm-hmm. go to a place where everyone's going to be honoring the memory of someone that I, I just we yeah. couldn't stand. So I yeah. I, I respectfully declined but they would call me like they left the funeral home. They called me, they left the morgue after like identifying his body and they called me and it was just so weird to be a part of that
0: in this. When you say that they were calling you, were you taking those phone calls or was that too much? Were you talking to different family members? Tell me about that whole experience.
1: So I would take the phone calls, you know, his mother and I, like I said, were super, super close. Yeah when I was married to her son and I knew she was hurting. And for some reason I was the person she wanted to reach out to. And so I just felt like, not that I owed it to her, but that mm. if she needed me to be a part of this portion of her journey, I will do it and mm. hold my tongue. And I also wanted to know what was going on in his life because okay. he loved nothing in this world more than his self. <laughs>
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: And it was hard for me to come to terms with the fact that he may have ended his life by suicide. Okay. And I was trying to understand. I would totally get if he upset someone enough to have them murder him.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I couldn't wrap my head around suicide for him. And so it did come out that he ended his life by suicide. His parents never really gave me a straight answer as far as what happened. His mother... Just kept saying that he died of a broken heart, Hmm. and uh, not indicating me, but there was a girl that he was pursuing at the time. That I guess they had broken up, and I didn't know why. So it was really interesting in in doing the investigation and writing this book because I had the story from his family that he died of a broken heart. Someone wrote an article about him, Uh and they listed out all these crimes, and I was shocked when I saw that and and then they called him a force for good they said i don't care what he did in his crimes he was a force for good in this world and that really
0: upset me okay well, tell me why take me on your train of thought
1: so i knew this person very well and i okay. was really good friends with his fiance years ago when my ex-husband and i were in massachusetts they got engaged And they literally pulled me aside and said, we would really love to have you as a bridesmaid in our wedding, but we can't do it because we can't have your husband there. He's too much of a jerk and he's embarrassing. So for him to then come back years later and write an article that he called how to deal with the suicide of a mentor, I just felt was so dishonest. And he had mentioned me specifically in there, like coming to my house for dinner and all of this stuff, and how much he loved my ex husband, and up to this point, I really kept quiet. You know, people kept saying all mm. these nice things about him, and I just kept quiet. They say don't speak ill of the dead, right? right I was just right. like, well, he's gone. What good is it going to do? And when I read that article, it's hard to explain or maybe to understand, but I felt like my life got stolen from me.
0: Okay. Like, t- like, yeah. What
1: he had invalidated my entire life experience by saying that this guy who had basically ruined my life, right. Yeah. To this day, I'm <clears throat> still in treatment for PTSD. And, okay. and then he was like, it doesn't matter the bad stuff he did. He was still here. He was a for force good for in good. the world.
0: Okay. And a mentor yeah. and yeah.
1: Okay. And, and I kind of found my voice that moment. And he had posted this article on LinkedIn all these comments of sympathies to him. And I felt like it was attention seeking. And so I just posted a message back and I just said, I don't know why you wrote this article. Please don't use my life to get whatever it is you're looking for, whether that's attention, sympathy. I don't really know. But you and I both mm. know the truth about Stephen. Okay. okay. So, you know,
0: what, you should, t- was you should take back to down. that.
1: Within five minutes, the or article you? was gone. Okay. And then he sent me a private message telling me that I'm not the first person to have read the article and told him that my ex-husband was a terrible person. And he apologized that he should have taken the article down a long time ago. And then I asked him, I was like, well, how did you find out about these crimes? And apparently he just I didn't know you could do this at the time. He just called the police departments and got the police reports. And so he shared all of that with me. So these were police reports for charges of felony grand larceny and swindling of over $250,000. And
0: and Sarah, was that the time when you were with him? Some of it it at that time?
1: It was not. So I like to consider myself if we reflect back to the coercive debt conversation. Yeah. yeah. I was his trial ground for that. And so he ended up doing the same thing to a business partner.
0: Okay. And so
1: he got arrested for that. And Uh while he was out on bond is when he chose to end his life by suicide.
0: Okay. Okay. So, needless to say, had you not gotten out of that relationship, where would that have gone as far as the debt and the ruining your credit, your name, your Mm -hmm. uh, financial future? I mean, I I can't imagine there would have been an end to that.
1: No. And, you know, I also just feel like. A lot of times with people like this, they get backed into that corner, which is what happened to him. Like the mask was gone. He couldn't hide himself anymore, right? Like the police came, they got him. He spent a few weeks in jail until his parents could get him out on bond. It was over for him, the charade. And he had an arsenal of guns. He was an Mm. avid collector of guns and loved Mm. to pull them out and clean them and play with them and whatever. And I just think about myself or the girl that he was with at the time. If she had been with him, would he have taken either one of us out with him? Like, I don't know.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's real. And I feel like that's where when I think you had mentioned earlier, when people aren't in these types of relationships, it's easy for people to say, I'm sure that wouldn't have really happened. But so Mm -hmm. says people until it happens. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah, you mentioned that people reach out to you after they read the book and they're sharing their stories. What's that been like for you? Has it been overwhelming? Has it been validating or what's that like?
1: It's been overwhelming, but what a complete honor it is to have people trust me with their own story. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's such a vulnerable place to be, to say this happened to me as well. And so by me telling my story, I've kind of given people an opportunity to at least have one person that they can reach out to and know that they won't be judged.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I think I was sharing with you that I'm getting a dozen or more emails a day from the Waking Up the Narcissism podcast because people just feel like they're alone or they're crazy. Mm -hmm. And then they hear a story like yours and the reach is just profound for people to feel like they aren't the only one. They're not alone. Did you... No. And did you have those moments when you were in that relationship or would you read other people's stories or did you feel like you were kind of going it alone for a long period of time?
1: You know, I never knew of anyone else going through this situation.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So I was very much confused and alone. I mean, I was young, right? Like I was 20 when we got married, 26 when we got divorced. And the words I just Mm -hmm. kept using wasn't abusive. It wasn't domestic violence. I didn't know those terms. I was Mm. just like, he's just so mean. Okay. And it wasn't until I had my own dark moment of, so when I finally left and I got into my apartment, I started having this recurring nightmare. Mm. And, Uh, I won't spoil all the good stories, but I do tell the nightmare in the book and I would wake up every night from this nightmare. And it was one of those nightmares where you would wake up and still be in the nightmare and then, you know, kind of uh, finally Uh, actually wake up. And I got really close to my own like struggle with suicidal thoughts and I just didn't know what else to do. I was like, I'm stuck in this. How do I get divorced? You know, I had gone to an attorney. I didn't have $4,000. Like he had stolen all of my money. I barely got into my apartment. I was hardly feeding myself. How was I going to spend $4,000? Luckily in Florida, you can just go online and download the divorce papers. And so I just did it all myself. I don't know how I did it. I'm just like, that was crazy. But Um, I filled out my own divorce papers. I walked down. I dropped off the papers. And then I drove the papers to the sheriff's department to have him served. And then I waited the 30 days. And when he didn't respond, I printed off the paperwork to file a motion for default on the divorce papers. And I took those down to the courthouse and filed those papers. Yeah. So it was just like, it was overwhelming. There was so much going on. And then I wasn't sleeping because I was having the dream and waking up. And a friend of mine had given me this book and I never wanted to open it because I mean, I was down in Florida, right? It's the Bible Belt. Everything was about church and religion. And so this book was called What the Bible Says About Divorce. And I was like, well, the Bible obviously says you're going to go to hell <laughs> if you get divorced. Like Uh-oh. That's where my mind was. And I was like, I'm not touching yeah. that book. <sighs> so finally, one night I had just at my wits end and I was like, what's it going to hurt? You know, I'm already there. So I opened the book and the first page that I came to was... Mm. A verse from Isaiah and they had, you know, paraphrase everything into like more modern day English, but it said your builders will be faster than your destroyers. And that was the turning point for me. I am a big fan of lists. Okay, what did that mean to you? And so I immediately made a list and instead of pros and cons, it was (laughs) builders and destroyers. And my destroyer was my ex-husband and I just started listing out my cousin my parents, my friends at work, the girl who gave me the book and the list of builders was way bigger than the list of my destroyers. And it was at that moment that I was like, okay, we can be faster than him. We can figure this out. And my work, just like the other day had given me paperwork on their employee assistant program. And so I called the number to get connected with a mental health provider. And I've been in talk therapy ever since. And in fact, I got the Okay. I love it. I mean, what, wait,
0: what is on, what's on your wrist?
1: I got the, the verse tattooed on my wrist. So it says you're building okay. faster than your destroyers. So it's just a constant oh, reminder. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I like, I give you the chills Sarah. I mean, that's, that is beautiful. And because that takes a lot of courage and I love the fact that you even said, okay, I know what this is going to say anyway. And you almost didn't, you almost didn't do it. I mean, I feel like the brain still is so afraid of that unknown or mm-hmm. the uncertainty of the future. Did you run into that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I would just say it's, it's scary when you don't know what to expect and what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. When are you getting asked a lot about, and I know this can sound so cliched, but then advice for people, because people are going to hear this and I think we're going to get the people they are going to say, well, my situation isn't as bad as Sarah's, but I think that still doesn't mean that it's, you know, people shouldn't have to be in a relationship where they feel isolated, gaslit, like they don't have a voice or a say, or they can't be themselves. So what do you say? You would also mention people are asking you for advice, right? When they're reaching mm-hmm. out to you.
1: Yeah. I've had a couple of women reach out to me and say, I'm yeah. in a situation right now. And I want to get out, but I don't know what to do. Uh And as I had just mentioned, I'm a big list person. I give two pieces of advice to the people that reach Uh out to me and man, woman, whatever you identify as these two pieces of advice have got me through. And Mm -hmm. the first one is you need to know where you're going. So you need a list. You need to map out the steps. So when you feel like you're losing your way, you know where you're going next, mm-hmm. right? So for me, it was like kind of thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, food, shelter, I needed to get out of my car, needed an mm-hmm. apartment, I needed a new bank account, you know. So making yeah. that list of what to do. And then it was like, okay, now I need to file for a divorce. How do I do that? Just give yourself marching orders and keep yourself on track. The other piece of advice okay. that I always give to people is get angry. And stay angry. The anger was the fire that I needed to keep going for people like Mm -hmm. myself. It's so easy to just like backslide and not be mad anymore. And then just be like, oh, okay, well, I guess. Yeah. But the anger was necessary at the time. And I'm not an angry person. I hardly ever get upset or angry about anything. But I just remember as soon as I would start to feel a little bit weak, think back on the stories, like stay pissed off for lack of a better term. And then there comes a time (laughs) where you have to let it go. You have, you you have to, and it sounds so easy talking about it that like get angry, stay angry and then forgive them. Um, It's not easy, but I'm a firm believer in the fact that forgiveness is not for the person you're forgiving. It's for yourself and you have to let it go. It's a physical feeling when you remove that burden of anger and unforgiveness from yourself. At least it is for me. So use the anger, fuel the fire. Okay. And then once you're done, it's time, let it go and move on with your life. It's the best. Those are the best two pieces of advice. I feel like I can give yeah. anybody.
0: I so appreciate that advice. And what I love about that is, that is that we started today by talking about the pathologically kind empath, highly sensitive person that I can only imagine how difficult that is to Conjure up that anger. But what I love what you're saying is emotion is there to protect us in theory, or not even in theory. In reality, anxiety is there as a warning. Anger can be used as a tool. It's your body trying to say, okay, I need to fight for this injustice. So you laid that out perfectly. I'd love for some of my pathologically kind people to be able to use that tool, that emotion. You know, those emotions are there to help them. And I've never heard it put so well, like you say, to then when I'm done with my anger and it served its purpose, I can Mm -hmm. put that away. Because yeah. that maybe isn't who you are at your core, but your body needs to pull that emotion for good, I think, in that scenario.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you were saying, our emotions are there for a reason. Yeah. They're there to protect us. You know, fear fear is important. Yeah. Um, anger is important. So it's happiness. Sadness is important. I mean, all yeah. of it's important. And it's just about don't let it control you. You control it and use it.
0: Yeah, I love it. I do. So, Sarah, the book is stronger than that. I'll have links to that in the show notes. And I really appreciate your vulnerability. And I know that this story is going to make its way out to a lot of people. And so, I would love for people to write in. If people have questions for you, I don't know. Would you be open to coming back on and maybe doing a QA?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, anybody listening, if they, I highly recommend getting the book, it's Kindle or paperback. And then you can also send questions to me through the website or contact at tonyoverbay.com for Sarah. And then Sarah, I'll stay in touch. And then I would love to have you come back on. We can do a QA either in the group for the women's group or we can do one as a bonus episode. But I really, um, I love your energy and I feel like you are such a survivor and what a story. So I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It was really great meeting and talking with you. And yeah, I would love to answer questions. That's what I'm here for.
0: Okay. Perfect. So we'll have all the links in, in the show notes and I will talk to you again soon.
1: Okay. Thanks so much, Tony.